first scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 1, an ancient sermon. The prophet Isaiah, an activist in the kingdom of Judah, invites worshipers to consider how God would respond to a worship totally divorced from actions of social justice. May these words challenge us anew in our worship today. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the command of Yahweh, you people of Gomorrah. These interminable sacrifices of yours, what are they to me, says Yahweh? I am fed up with burnt offerings of rams and the fat of calves. The blood of bulls, lambs, and goats nauseates me. When you come to present yourselves before me, who asked you to trample over my courts? Don't bring any more of your useless offerings to me. Their incense fills me with loathing. New moons, Sabbaths, assemblies. I cannot endure another festival of injustice. Your new moons and your pilgrimages I despise with all my soul. They are wearisome to me. I am tired of bearing them. When you open up your hands in prayer, I turn my eyes away from you. You may heap prayer upon prayer, but I won't hear them. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash, clean yourselves. Get your injustice out of my sight. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Search for justice and help the oppressed. Protect those who are orphaned and plead the case of those who are widowed. Come now. Let's look at the choices before you, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they can be like fleece. The Gospel readings come from the book of Matthew. The following is a collection of teachings on worship taken from the Sermon on the Mount. In this collection, Jesus challenges common, misused worship practices, pointing to the fuller reality behind each. May these words illuminate our own posture of worship today. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your sister or brother has a grudge against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go to be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Beware of practicing your piety before others to attract their attention. If you do this, you will have no reward from your Abba God in heaven. And when you pray, don't behave like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing up in the synagogues and on the street corners for people to see them. The truth is, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to God who is in that secret place, and your Abba God, who sees all that is done in secret, will reward you. It isn't those who cry out, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Rather, it is those who do the will of Abba God in heaven. Rather, when that day comes, many will plead with me, Savior, Savior, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not exercised demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name as well? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Out of my sight, you evildoers. Jesus finished speaking and left the crowd spellbound at his teachings because he taught with an authority that was unlike their religious scholars. Before moving to Monroe, Claire and I worked in Waco, Texas for several years which is home to Baylor University. 
Every year in late August, right before the beginning of the fall semester, just about every church in town would gather on Baylor's Quad for an event publicly known as the Celebration of Community and Faith, although privately we just called it the Church Fair. <laughs> you know, we have job fairs, student activity fairs, and in the private Christian university bubble, a church fair. Every church would get their own table in varying degrees of shade or August sun, depending on who you knew in the spiritual life department. <laughs> They'd spread out their publicity materials, their tchotchkes, their attention grabbers, like a Comic-Con for Jesus. <laughs> and then the ministers and volunteers would stand around their space and try to convince students to give their church a chance. At least most ministers did that. I mostly asked students what they were looking for and then said you'd probably be comfortable somewhere else. <laughs> and you couldn't be there long without catching on that students would start the conversation in one of two ways. First, there was the oh-so-vague, tell me about your church, which was often a code for, do you have a singles ministry at your church that could help me out? And second, there was the oh-so-loaded, what is worship like at your church? And as far as most students were concerned, pretty much everything they felt they needed to know about a church could be found in the answer to that second question. Do you do traditional worship? Do you have an organ and sing those same boring hymns every week with all of their thines and their thous, climaxing in a three-point sermon, altar call, and five reps of Just As I Am? Or do you do contemporary worship? Are there guitars and drum sets and songs with the same three lyrics over and over with a stream of consciousness sermon in there somewhere? Or are you charismatic, raving, waving your hands in the air? Or are you liturgical with your rote genuflex and your signs of the cross? An entire life of a church could be condescendingly reduced to that one question. What is worship like at your church? Are you like me? Or should I be suspicious? A friend of mine, a worship pastor with a distaste for reductive dualism, would always intentionally buck this question. Like that kid that would throw dynamite in a rock, paper, scissors game. <laughs> What's worship like at your church? They'd ask. And he would respond with great pleasure. Let's call it ancient future worship. <laughs> we tell the ancient story of God so that we can faithfully live into God's story in the present. And I always imagined a student like nodding along and then saying, yeah, but do you use guitars or? <laughs> and you can hear the not so subtle implication in that answer. The question you're asking is the wrong question. Shouldn't we be talking about what we're worshiping? About whether our worship challenges us to transcend ourselves and find out who we are in God's story, or does it just help us cling just a little harder to our small, fearful, self-justifying ego stories? What fruit does your worship produce? Self-satisfaction or social justice? What is worship like at your church? About 3,000 years ago, these were questions that Isaiah asked of the worshipers in Judah. Or maybe it would be better to say, Isaiah knew the answer to these questions and he demanded something better. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He starts with a bit of a bang. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And you can almost hear them pushing back. After all, they were people of divine favor, not divine judgment. 
Oh, really? Isaiah shoots back. Because the fruit you bear, the way you treat the most vulnerable among you, it doesn't look much different from Sodom and Gomorrah, now does it? God asks, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What's the point? Enough with your burnt offerings. What was once such a pleasing aroma of gratitude and commitment is now a nauseating stench of thoughtlessness and mendacity. Did you think it was the blood of rams that made me happy? You thought that they were what? A way to buy me off? I asked for your hearts and your hands, not your livestock. You think coming to my temple is an act of devotion. You'd be better off staying home. Trample my courts no more. Your songs and your prayers are to me no more than a clanging gong and a clashing cymbal. Your services and your meetings and your festivals and your conferences, I find them tedious. I find them boring. You stretch out your hands and you say, Lord, Lord, but you don't know me at all. You're not talking to me. So get your hands out of my face. They're covered in blood. And again, you can hear them push back saying, of course they're covered in blood. It's the blood of the sacrifices that you asked for. But again, you can hear God shoot back. You might deceive yourselves, but I will not be deceived. Your hands are covered in the blood of the people, of the poor that you trample, the widow and orphan that you leave to die in the streets, the immigrant you exploit and send to prison for your own gain. You want to know what I want? What kind of worship I find acceptable? Wash that blood off your hands. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, care for my children who have fallen through the cracks, and then, only then, when your worship bears the fruit of love and justice, will you be worshiping me, Yahweh, the living God. Thus saith the Lord. In my last couple of sermons, I've observed that of the, ten th or the thousands of religions identified on our planet, there really seem to be only two. There's religion that roots us more firmly in ego and religion that liberates us to fall into the spirit of love. And today the prophet Isaiah points out that both of those religions have their own style of worship. And whatever form it takes, whatever language it uses, whether it uses ancient liturgies and bells or organs or stage lights or guitars, there are really only two kinds of worship. Worship can be a tool for meeting the imagined needs of the self or a participatory drama that wakes us up to God's spirit. And in the hope of seeing our practice more clearly, let's consider the two. First, there's egoic religion, which is eager to put everything from scripture to mission to worship into the service of the flesh, the false self. And by that, I mean the scripts that we are running in our head in which we are at the center and the whole world is categorized around us into good, bad, like, dislike, safe, unsafe. And while this story may have helped us for a while, it's no longer necessary. And it certainly shouldn't be in the driver's seat of our lives. It bears the fruit of fear and tribalism and indulgence 
and it's eager to put everything into its service, and worship is no different. In the hands of the ego, worship becomes a tool for meeting our imagined needs. Let's imagine for just a minute that we are contemporaries of Isaiah, worshipers in ancient Judah. At the appointed times, you wake up, you gather your things, including the best of your livestock, and you make the trip, the trip to temple, to the temple in Jerusalem. You say your long prayers, you sing your psalms, and you offer your sacrifice at the altar. And as you watch the smoke from your burnt offering rise from the altar to the heavens, you feel what exactly? This is where each of our false selves will put worship to work, trying to meet some imagined need. To one person, watching the smoke rise or singing their psalms, they may feel that they've earned God's forgiveness now, and now they don't have to feel so guilty all the time. To another, they may feel they've done their part for God and earned some kind of blessing from God, so maybe things will go better for them this week. To yet another, the rituals might kindle a sense of self-assurance, certain that, yes, God is on my side, and I am on the right team, and it's okay for me to obliterate my enemies because God says so. Perhaps to someone else, the act achieves some kind of spiritual high that will take them into their next worship experience, like they've gotten closer to that exciting divine reality and meaning that they've felt so separate from that their gray life is, just for a little while, infused with meaning and possibility. Or maybe it's just a habit. Maybe it's the way things are. It's what we're supposed to do. And to mess with that status quo is to invite unnecessary discomfort that we just don't need right now. But the thing is, none of these ego needs will actually be met through worship. Not for very long, anyway. Like an addict, they'll return to their illusory, temporal drug of choice week after week, season after season. We might call this worship abuse. But is it really so different from the reasons modern worshipers might drag themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning? Is it really that different from the needs worshipers hope will be met in that church or synagogue or temple or whatever they call their gathering place? the liturgy, the music, whatever it is, it's all put to work trying to satiate that never-satisfied hunger of the ego for intimate connection with the divine. What we really bow down to in this mode of worship is not the living God, but to ourself, to our own fears and to our own desires. Fears and desires that can never be truly addressed this way but only by dying to the self, not indulging it. We dress up the flesh in divine clothes, bowing down to it as if it were what God wanted, managing the whole time to hide safely from any kind of eternal truth. It is as a wise person once wrote, in the beginning God created humanity in God's own image, and humanity has been trying to return the favor ever since. And when we bow down to the self, we reinforce those desires, baptizing them in the name of God. We commit 
and idolatry that locks us firmly in our own small, painful stories, producing the fruits of Sodom and Gomorrah, enmity, anger, fights, oppression, indulgence. This worship drives us deeper into the illusion that we're separate from one another or separate from God. In the hands of the ego, worship becomes no more than a tool for meeting the imagined needs of the self. But then there's that other religion, that framework that guides us in dying to ourselves and liberating us from the small stories and scripts, the fears and the hungers of the ego, so that we might be born again to new life and the spirit of love might live fully through us. The goal of that religion is Christ-likeness, and in the service of this tradition, worship will point beyond itself to the ever-unfolding story of God. Isaiah sees a congregation entering the temple, engaging in worship, and then walking back out into the world totally unchanged. When Isaiah looks at their worship, he sees the emptiness of the rituals and the symbols, and he tries to shake them out of their pattern. Do you think we sacrifice animals to God, what, because God likes animal sacrifice? No. It's to put us in a posture of gratitude and humility before God. Do you think that we sing to God because God just likes the entertainment? No. We sing so that the knowledge of God's character can be woven into the deepest parts of ourselves, the parts that only music can reach. Do you think we wash our hands because God told us to and we just need to do what God told us to do so that God will stay happy with us? No. We wash our hands because it's symbolic of new life, of cleanliness and renewal through God's grace. Each of these elements point beyond themselves to a deeper, truer reality. This is what God wants. Worship that moves us beyond ourselves and into God. Worship that produces the fruits of love and justice. I heard a story once of a mother trying to teach her children to make pot roast, as her mother had taught her. She walked them through the steps, one of which was to cut off just a half inch or so from either end of the roast before putting it into the pan. But why do you cut off the ends, one child asked. It kind of seems like a waste of meat. And the mother was momentarily gripped by a fear that the child would abandon this tradition that meant so much to her. A tradition she, she associated with family gatherings and mutual care, and so she responded by rebuking them. This is just the way our family does it. Trust me. Well, that night after her children went to sleep, their question kept pestering her, so she decided to call her mother and ask her about it. Oh, dear, her mother replied with a laugh. I always cut off the ends because our pan wasn't big enough for the whole roast to fit. <laughs> Worship, separated from a purpose beyond itself, just becomes an empty vessel for our ego to fill. And in the tradition of Isaiah, Jesus teaches the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the elements of worship and reclaims them from that ego script. Are you offering a gift at the altar with, while still fostering anger in your heart? As if one reality shouldn't touch the other one? Forget it. 
Leave your sacrifice because it won't mean anything at all unless you first take the work of abandoning yourself to God's spirit seriously. Are you worshiping so that other people will see you and think that you're righteous? That isn't what this is for at all. It isn't those that go to worship and sing, Lord, Lord, that will experience the kingdom, but those who actually do the will of God. When it all comes crashing down and they see what God, being, love, really is, they'll realize that in all their church going, in all of their Bible studies or choir practices, they'd never actually met God before. They were only keeping company with themselves. Worship is, at its best, the practice of dramatically reenacting God's story, a story we can all participate in and lose ourselves in. We get caught up in this story and bow down before the spirit of love, which is beyond ourselves. Let's consider our own liturgy, for example. The preludes, the call to worship, the procession and hymns, the prayer, the reading, the sermon, the anthem, the communion, the invitation, and the response. Together, they tell a story that serves to symbolize the story of God as it plays out in a thousand ways every day. In the preludes and the call to worship, an invitation is issued as everything invites us to awaken to God's presence. And some answer the call, proceeding forward to pay closer attention or at least standing up in reverence. In the prayers, we confess how we have lived, and awaken to see ourselves as God sees us. And then with these clear lenses, we listen for a word from God in the readings. And then we play with it and consider it in the sermon and in the anthem. And it all culminates as we behold what we are, the body of Christ, and become what we receive, taking that life and grace into ourselves in communion. And then we are invited to respond, to take that word and allow it to become flesh, our flesh, in this world. We respond by loving ourselves and the world with the spirit that we've inherited from God. And we're not just watching a priest perform holy acts. It's participatory. We call and respond, we sing and we eat, because we're all participants in this great drama that awakens us to the grand story of God. That is worship. And the fruit of that worship is always a deep compassion for ourselves and for our world. It moves us to care for one another, not out of guilt, but out of awareness that we are all one in God. Worship should point beyond itself to the ever-unfolding story of God. While I was in the middle of it, the church fair always seems pretty normal. It's only when I've tried to describe it to others that I find myself saying, I know, it's weird. But the longer I sit with it, the more it seems like a perfect microcosm of church in the Bible Belt. What's worship at your church like, we ask, 
hopping around and looking for something that best suits our tastes, that feels most harmonious to our ego, totally unaware that the question we're asking is the wrong question. Because whatever form it takes, whatever instruments or liturgies it uses, it's only as good as its ability to help us enter that unfolding, ancient, brand new cosmic story. Its ability to help us be formed more fully into the likeness of Christ. Worship can be used as a tool for meeting the needs of the self or a participatory drama that wakes us up to God's spirit. So Northminster family, may we be a people who ask the right question. May we be a people who see through the ego games that we're so apt to play. And may we truly worship God together in spirit and in truth.